Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm chapter 91. Psalm chapter 91. It is a new year. Time flies by. Every new year we try to look at a passage that will kind of guide us for the remainder of the year. Last year we looked at Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3, looking at fixing our eyes on Jesus. That kind of became our compass for the year as we studied the book of John, as we studied idols that would take our eyes off of Christ. We studied so many different things that would enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus last year. We're going to continue to do that for sure. But this first Sunday of 2016, I I thought that we could set the tone for the year by looking at Psalm 91. Psalm 91. We live in a world that is filled with chaos, filled with fear. There's fear in our city. There's fear in our country. There's fear in our state. There's fear around the world. There's evil in the world. There's suffering. And my question is, how do we begin a new year with peace and security? There may be things that you have gone through this last year. Difficult trials that you never thought you would have to face. And you look back on your suffering and you think, God, were you even there? God, do you even care? How are you supposed to live at peace when all around you is pure suffering and chaos? Maybe you are about to go through a trial in 2016. For some of us, it might be the worst year that we've ever gone through. We are assured in God's word that in this life we will have troubles. We will have tribulation. That's a promise. Maybe this year will be difficult. How are you supposed to live with all the suffering that you go through? Maybe you're not going through anything yet, but maybe even today you might start a trial. How do we find peace? How do we find security? How can we rest? That's what Psalm 91 is all about. Charles Spurgeon said, In the whole collection of the Psalms, there is not a more cheering psalm than Psalm 91. Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout. Faith is at its best. And the psalm speaks nobly. The reality is we have an option in this life. We have an option to have peace or to be anxious. That is our option. We can choose peace or we can choose anxiety. When I first started out in ministry, um, I was very young. I'm still very young, but I was very young. When I first started out in junior high ministry, I was 18. I remember talking with parents. I remember talking with older people. um, And I remember just wondering why they fretted so much. Why they were so anxious. Uh, Just, why can't you have peace? I remember having conversations where Older people were just always afraid of something, afraid of this, afraid of that. I just remember in my very green state of mind thinking, you're a Christian. Be at peace. Christians have peace. Be at peace. What's wrong with you? They would be anxious, nervous, afraid of this or that happening. And over the years, I have come to see that this or that happens all the time. Um, I had peace as a younger man. I think we could label it stupid peace. (laughs) Maybe we could make it a little nicer, naive peace. And there are many people who have that kind of naive peace. They just think that all should be right in the world. 
They haven't gone through many troubles of their own, and so they think there aren't that many troubles in this world. There aren't that many things in this world that make me anxious. You shouldn't be anxious either. You shouldn't be afraid. There are many people that think if something goes wrong in the world, that means someone messed up. God messed up. You messed up. Karma messed up. Something's wrong. And maybe you can just sue somebody and it'll all be right. Move on. That kind of naive, stupid peace lends itself to bitterness because you end up thinking that life should be good. Normal life is good, peaceful life. And when things go badly, that means somebody's not holding up their end of the bargain. And you turn out to be a bitter person because you had naive peace. There's another kind of peace. It's a biblical peace. It's a smart peace. It's a wise peace. And that peace is found in Psalm 91. The reality is, uh, as Shakespeare says it very well, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven upon the face. Each new morning, we could say each new hour, each new minute, the world is filled with suffering. How are we supposed to deal with it? That's the question, and I believe that's what Psalm 91 seeks to answer. Let's read it together. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You trample, you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. Because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Oh God, I pray that you would teach us. Teach us this morning as we study your word how to find our rest in you. How to not be afraid. How to be at peace even when all around us is evil, is suffering, is chaotic. And God, I pray for those in this room that are in the midst of a trial right now, in the midst of painful circumstances, that your spirit would minister. God, for those of us who are not going through a trial at this present moment, God, I pray that we'd be wise to listen to these words and guard our hearts and prepare our hearts for the days ahead when trials and suffering will come. And God, I pray at the end of this service, we would walk away at peace because of who you are and because of what you've done. 
We pray it in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Psalm 91. It is an anonymous psalm. We don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous, just like 14 of the other 17 psalms that are in book four of the Psalter. There are five books in the Psalter. Book four starts in Psalm 90, uh, Moses' psalm. We don't know who the the author is, but a lot of tradition would lend itself to Moses being the author because traditionally, um, if a psalm is left anonymous, you would take the author of the uh, previously named psalm. So the previously named psalm, the previously named author of the, the most recent psalm is Psalm 90, and that's Moses. So some say it was written by Moses. We don't know for sure, and I think we should leave it as we don't know for sure. There's a reason why I think it's helpful that we don't know who it was. We don't know what was going on. We don't know the background. Some try to give it a background. They say it was during a battle or during desert wilderness wanderings. It could be all of those things. But I love that there is no specific author and no specific setting because we can apply it in whatever setting we are in. No matter where we are, we can apply it there. We can give this psalm as medicine to our souls in the midst of whatever trial we're going through because there's no specific trial that's happening here. It's just suffering and trials, period. And since we don't know for sure, we'll leave it as anonymous. But we can split this psalm up into really two sections. The psalmist speaks in verses 1 through 13, and he's teaching. It's really a sermon. And he's preaching a sermon. And then at the end of the sermon, God picks up the pen, as it were, in verses 14 through 16, and he preaches a sermon. He speaks. So we'll split it up into those two sections. Verses 1 through 13, the psalmist teaches on the protection of the Lord. He's going to teach on the protection of the Lord. And then, point number two, verses 14 through 16, the Lord is going to teach on his promises towards his people. So the psalmist is going to teach on the protection of the Lord, and the Lord is going to teach on his promises towards his people. All throughout this psalm, the psalmist is going to teach us based on his own experience about the character of God, and he's going to tell us how we should live based on the proven character of God in his own life. This is very helpful for us. We tend to give witness to what's bad in our lives. We tend to walk around and boast about what is hurtful that's happening, the evil that's going on. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, men are apt enough to proclaim their doubts and even to boast of them. Indeed, there is a party nowadays of the most audacious pretenders to culture and thought who glory in casting suspicion on everything. Hence, it becomes the duty of all true believers to speak out and testify with calm courage to their own well-grounded reliance upon their God. Let others say what they will, be it ours to say of the Lord, He is our refuge. That's what we should do. That's what we should do as the church. We should be the church for one another and say, God is our refuge. God is our refuge. Let's listen to the psalmist as he does that for us. Verse 1, he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And he's going to say, I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He who dwells, the word dwells there is very specific. It's not staying somewhere for a short time. It's remaining. We, we see the other word abide in verse 1. He who dwells and he who abides. Uh, those are two similar words. It's not moving around from place to place. It's putting your roots down deep and staying. Uh, we know 
this is happening even today with the, the gas leak that's been going on. People are getting moved to hotels, and Lord willing, they'll go back to their houses once uh, the gas leak has been fixed. But for now, they're taking residence in a new place. They're not dwelling in the hotels. They're taking residence in the hotels, and then they're going to go back to their dwelling place. We need to be clear here because the psalmist is saying the only one who's going to be at peace in God is the one who dwells in his presence, not who dabbles in his presence. You must dwell in the presence of the Most High, in his shelter. Much of the difficulty and the danger that we face as Christians in our Christian life is caused by just dabbling in the presence of God, showing up and then leaving, showing up and then leaving. And the psalmist says we need to be intentional about dwelling in the shelter that he has provided to us. Again, I, I, I just plead with you, one of the best ways that you can dwell in the presence of God is being in his word on a daily basis. So please, it's a new year. Start a Bible reading plan where you can dive into God's word and dwell, abide in him. And not just go in and out as you would please. If you dwell in the shelter of the Most High, in His protection. If you abide in Him, you will abide in His shadow. You will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now that word shadow doesn't really mean anything to us who have air conditioning, uh, but to um, the ancient Middle Easterners who are wandering around in the desert with no AC, to find shadow is to find life. I remember reading a book on the conflict that happened in Mogadishu in the 90s, um, and I, uh, th- there was about 123 degrees. Uh, these soldiers were wearing all of their armor, which is over 100 pounds, and they were running around in the desert. And they said that it, sometimes it was more satisfying to find a place where there was a shadow than it was even to drink from their canteens, to get out of the sun and to find rest and peace in a shadow, uh, even than water itself. So the psalmist says, do you want to dwell at peace? Do you want to dwell security? Do you want to have comfort? You need to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 2, I will say to to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress. He's going to use the word bulwark. He's going to try and use as many different words as he can to say a huge fortress where no one can get to and you're safe and secure. Therefore, God is our God in whom we trust. We trust. Notice in these two verses, there are four titles for our God. There are four titles. Most High, Almighty, Lord, and God. Four titles. What do they mean? Most High. It's the Hebrew word Elyon, which focuses on divine sovereignty, majesty over the whole earth, over the whole universe. There's no one higher than our God. He is highest above all things, and therefore he can protect you from anything because anything that is uh, an enemy towards you is underneath him. He is higher than it all. Almighty, that's Shaddai, El Shaddai, emphasizes God's omnipotence, his power, his might. He is the almighty God. So he's higher than all things. He's bigger than all things. And he's also more powerful than all things. He can take care of anything. And he will. He's promised to. Lord, it's the word Yahweh. You see it in all capitals there. Yahweh is God's covenant-keeping name. He has made a covenant with his people, and he has promised us something, and he will never go back on that covenant. So he's higher than all things, he's mightier than all things, and he has promised to be for us in Jesus Christ. God, Elohim, 
the fourth title. It refers to God as the supreme creator. He is the creator over all things. He holds you in his hands. Therefore, you would be wise to find your refuge in him and in nothing else, in him alone. That's what the psalmist does. Verse 2, my refuge, my fortress, and my God. This is a personal issue because this is a personal relationship. That is who God is. Verses 3 through 13, what the psalmist is going to do now is he's going to explain how God will protect us. In every format, in everything that we would face, God will protect us. And really what we can do in verses 3 through 13, we will see the word you constantly as the psalmist is teaching us. You could just put your name there. You could put your name, like in verse 3, it is he who delivers Patrick from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover Patrick with his pinions. Um, Under his wings, Patrick may seek refuge. You can put yourself there because the psalmist is saying, this is who God is for you if you will find your dwelling place in him. If you will find your dwelling place in him, this is who God is for you. Verse 3, God is a deliverer. God delivers you from the snare of the trapper. Some versions say fowler. This is a bird that's being trapped. Um, They actually came up with really, really cool techniques of trapping birds back then in biblical times. Birds couldn't see it, get trapped very, very quickly. And this has a picture where God is saying, I am going to enable you to see the traps so you can walk around them, you can walk through them. What is invisible to everyone else and traps them will be perfectly visible to you and you'll be able to walk right through. I'll deliver you from the deadly pestilence. That's a life-taking plague, meaning I'm going to give you life. What normally will take life away from you, I will give you life and keep you safe. Verse 4, I will cover you with my pinions. Pinions is just a word for wings. It's a common picture that was used in the Old Testament. Ruth chapter 2, verse 12 Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Psalm 36, find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, take refuge in the shadow of your wings. He's going to cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. This is the picture of a, of a bird a mother hen, as it were, um, covering her little baby chicks so that they don't uh, fall under harm. I don't want to make too much of this, but I did stop to ask the question, of all the pictures of something mighty to protect you, a mother hen? (laughs) We can just kick a mother hen. Like, why is that just huge? I mean, a fortress, I understand, something enormous, but a mother hen, why? Again, I don't want to make too much of this, but if this is a picture of a mother hen, we, we don't see God as our mother, right? That's, that's a cult that's out there in the world. God's not our mother. But I think that there is something to be said for the fact that human fathers, earthly fathers, have the distinct possibility of being remote quite often, right? We, we, we tend to be, as far as the emotional one, we tend to be less emotionally, intimately involved in our kids' lives but not our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father has the relational intimacy, the emotional intimacy of a mother hen guarding her baby chicks. 
our Father is our, a perfect Heavenly Father. He is not like human fathers who can be distant. He runs towards us in the midst of our suffering. He doesn't say to us, rub some dirt on it and get back up. He runs towards us. He holds us in his hands. Even as Jesus says, using this picture in Matthew, how often, Israel, I wanted to gather you together. I wanted to protect you. You would not come, but I wanted to protect you. He wants to draw near to us. His faithfulness is a shield. And it's a bulwark. A bulwark is just a big fortress, impregnable. You can't get through it. You can't get into it. And it's a shield. And this word for shield, there's two words for shield in Hebrew. One is a a little shield that goes on your arm that you can kind of hold and, and move very quickly to defend from arrows and things like that. That's not this word. This word for shield is, it's actually kind of a half circle, and it goes from the ground up past your head. You can stand, even I could stand behind it, and nothing could touch me, nothing could hit me from in front. They would literally sleep underneath their shields so that they wouldn't get uh, attacked from above, and sometimes they would dig out holes, put the shield underneath the holes, a little archway, and they would sleep um, in their little uh, foxholes, as it were. His faithfulness is a shield about us, a full body shield. And it's a fortress, a walled city that keeps us safe. Augustus Toplady, who uh, wrote Rock of Ages, wrote several different hymns. And I really wanted to sing this hymn uh, this morning. But every melody that I could find to it was really bad. (laughs) So I decided we're going to try and put our own melody to it because it does not have a good melody. It doesn't have very good music, but it has amazing lyrics. He says, a sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. What a great line to lead off his hymn, a sovereign protector I have. Sovereign protector, a shield, a bulwark. Therefore, verse five, you will not be afraid of the terror by night. You will not be afraid of the terror by night. The Hebrew here is very clear, and my Bible doesn't do it justice. It's not, you will not be afraid. It's literally a command. The command would go as follows. Do not ever be afraid. The construction of this command, it's actually used in a different place. It's used in Exodus chapter 20. We know that as the Ten Commandments. You shall not... That's the same exact construction. You shall not be afraid. It's the strongest way to present a command. It's stronger than even when God speaks to Joshua and says, do not be afraid, do not worry, fear not. That, that's, a, that's a command, but that's a weaker command compared to the construction here. You shall not be afraid. If you truly trust in God for everything that he is and everything he's promised to be for you, then you'll never be afraid. If you are afraid, you need to trust God. That's the command here. Don't be afraid. And I love what the psalmist tells us. He gives us four things, four types of perils that we should not be afraid of. And in doing so, he kind of gives us a holistic picture of everything that we could face in this life. He says, don't be afraid of the terror by night. Don't be afraid of the arrow that flies by day. Don't be afraid of pestilence that stalks in darkness. And don't be afraid of the destruction that lays waste at noon. So terror by night, arrow that flies by day, that's man-made harm. 
pestilence that stalks at night, in the darkness, destruction that lays waste at noon. Um, that, that's just sickness. That's natural disaster. So we've got man-made disaster. We've got natural disaster. And the way that this is constructed, when it says, by night, by day, in darkness, and at noon, that's something in Hebrew called a merism. Uh, merism, we, we know it better by example, by phrases that we use. Uh, young and old, that's everybody, right? Um, ladies and gentlemen, that's everyone. Um, we have different merisms, heaven and earth, uh, different things like that, different things. That's what the psalmist is doing here. No matter what time of day it is, no matter where you are, or no matter what is chasing you down, you will be secure. And I love how he gives us four things to create a merism. Uh, he only needed to, to use two things, but he uses four, and I think it's a little bit of a parallel to the four titles of, of who God is. Um, Four titles of God's protection and who he is and his character. Four dangers that could befall us, but we will not be afraid. Verses 7 and 8. Beautiful, beautiful picture. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. This is the picture of everything bad happening around you. And you're just standing there as a, as a bystander watching uh, just picture, picture a hurricane, um, and you're standing in the middle of a hurricane, and the wind's blowing, and the rain's coming, and, and houses are being torn down, and you're standing there, and your hair isn't even moving in the wind. And pieces of houses are flying by, trees that are being split up and splintered all over the place are just going past you, and you're just standing there looking. Nothing's harming you. I love even at, it says a thousand can fall at your side. Ten thousand can fall at your right hand. So let's put ten thousand more on the left hand. We've got twenty thousand people falling around you in some form of destruction. And I love even that. The psalmist leaves it general because he says uh, it shall not approach you. Whatever it is, people are dying around you, but it's not going to take you. It's not going to take you. And to put this in our, in our very real context... You can show up at a party where everyone has the norovirus, but you won't get it. You'll be protected. You will not be afraid. You will only look on, verse 8. You can just look. You're going to see the recompense of the wicked. Those who do not trust in God will be destroyed, but you won't. You have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. This is a a tricky construction in verse 9, but what the psalmist is saying is that his teaching is working. When he first started, he said, the Lord is my refuge and my fortress, and he should be yours too. Verse 9, he's saying, you have made the Lord, go to the back half of it, your dwelling place. You've made the Lord your dwelling place. The Lord, who is my refuge and the Most High, you've made him your dwelling place. The teaching is working. You're applying it. And since you are applying it and you are making him your dwelling place, no evil will befall you. Verse 10 nor will any plague come near your tent. No evil will befall you because you're standing enshrouded in the holiness of God. You're protected by God. No plague will even come near your tent or your dwelling place. Your dwelling place is dwelling in God. Therefore, nothing will come near you. You'll find your comfort, your peace, your security in him alone. This begs the question, what do you find your peace in? What do you find your comfort in? What do you tend to turn to in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, to bring peace? 
the reality is pretty much everything in our lives is made either to bring us comfort or to kill somebody next to us and take the comfort from them. Pretty much every designed uh, invention in the world is made for those reasons, to give us comfort and security or to take comfort and security from somebody else, kill them and take it for ourselves. But we can do away with all that if we find our comfort in Jesus, in the God who loves us and who cares for us. Verse 11, he continues and he says something that it just, it almost seems crazy. Uh, Not just verse 10, no evil will befall you or no plague will even come near your tent. Verse 11, he continues. He's going to give his angels charge concerning you, this idea of guardian angels, to guard you in all of your ways. They will bear you up in your hands, in their hands, that you don't strike your foot against a stone. Now, those verses obviously will be ringing in your ears. Uh, Those are the verses that Satan used when he was talking with Jesus and tempting him. He quoted those verses in Matthew 4. We're going to come back to this issue, but the reality is we know these verses are not go find trouble. Don't, Don't go seeking out trouble. Trust God in the midst of trouble that comes upon you. There's a big difference between testing God and trusting God. Big, big difference. A lot of people in evangelicalism blur that line. I'm going to trust God by walking blindfolded across the 101 freeway. That's not trusting God. That's testing him and being stupid. There's a difference. But these verses that Satan used, Satan was trying to get Jesus to test God, to throw himself into danger, as it were. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, I'm, uh, this verse is only about just natural danger that's befallen you, not running yourself into danger. But they are an amazing promise. You will be guarded. You will be protected. Verse 13, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Now, these aren't literal animals. Again, don't go find a snake and try and step on it. Um, There are so many other places in the Psalms where animals are used figuratively. Uh, Psalm 22, dogs, people are referred to as dogs. Uh, Bulls uh, are used as well. There's a bunch of different animals that are used as figurative imagery. That's what's being used here. Two very dangerous animals, a lion and a cobra, even a young lion that's going to be faster than an older lion, and a serpent, they're not going to be a danger to you. This is the psalmist just picking out the biggest natural threat, the biggest animal threat, and saying they're not going to be a threat to you. The tone of all of these verses is just very simply saying, nothing will be a danger to you. You won't fear anything. You will rest securely in God. Now, I read these verses. Before we get to verses 14 through 16, when God's going to take up the pen, as it were, and, and write, obviously, He was writing all along because it's the Holy Spirit writing through the psalmist, but you know what I mean. Before we get to verses 14 through 16, we have to stop. I read through verses 1 through 13, and as I was reading this, specifically verse 10, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. I can testify that that's not true because a plague came in my tent and wrecked me for two weeks. 
I have, I've heard sermons on Psalm 91 preached by prosperity gospel preachers. This is their, one of their favorite texts. If you obey God and have faith in him, everything will go well for you. Therefore, conversely, if things aren't going well for you, it's because you don't have faith. Now, we know that that's wrong. We know that that's unbiblical, that's purely heretical, and I think that we can go as far as saying it's a satanic heresy because Satan himself used that tactic with Jesus. Satan used that tactic. He preached that to him. If anything goes wrong with you, Jesus, then your father isn't holding up his end of the bargain. So let's see. Let's see. You're not going to suffer. Oh, wait, no, he is going to suffer. He's going to go to the cross. Maybe Satan's words are ringing in Jesus' ears in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why isn't my father protecting me now? Why is he surrounding me now? No evil is going to befall you. I'm about to be whipped and beaten and hung on a cross. So we know that's not what this is saying. We know that these verses are clearly not teaching. If you follow Jesus, nothing bad happens in your life. We know that inside the text, we're going to get to that. We know that outside the text, other verses that come to mind, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. So we can cling to the promise that Jesus gave us. You're going to have hardships and troubles. But let me give you three other reasons, just in in here and and a little bit in the Old Testament. Three other reasons why we know that this text is not saying if you follow Jesus, nothing bad happens to you. Number one, hermeneutically, when when you study the Bible, if you really, really, really want a verse to say something, be suspicious when you come to the interpretation that it says that thing. If you really, really want a verse to mean something, and then you go, I think it means that. Just be cautious. That's why prosperity preachers read this and they go, no evil will befall you. That's what it means. It means you will, if you follow Jesus, nothing bad happens to you. If you want it to mean that, which we would all love for it to mean that, let's be suspicious when it does mean that to us. Number two, biblically, even within the Old Testament, without going to the New Testament, Even in the Old Testament alone, we know that that doesn't work. That it doesn't work that righteous people will not have difficulties. Job, whole book of Job, the most righteous man on the face of the earth, goes through the worst suffering that the world had seen um, in that moment. And if you remember the the three friends, there's a fourth that comes into, they're talking to him, they say a bunch of things. When the whole thing ends, God speaks to them. And one of the things that God says to them is this. You, three friends, have not spoken truth about me. You've not spoken truth about me. Why? What were they saying about God? God takes care of his people. And if something's going wrong in your life, then you sinned because God's going after you. Or God's not holding up his end of the bargain. They were not speaking truth about God. The truth is, bad things do happen to righteous people. And they were not speaking that truth. But point number three, reason number three, Satan wants you to believe that bad things will never happen to believers. He wants you to believe that. He quotes, of all of the passages in Scripture, he could have quoted to test Jesus. He had thousands of years to figure out what he was going to go after Jesus with, and he went with this verse. Why? Because the devil wants us to think that God's promises have failed if God lets us suffer. The devil wants us to think that God's promises have failed 
if God lets us suffer. Satan was telling Jesus, don't go down the path of suffering. Get the glory without the suffering. Satan is saying, God will not make good on his promise if you suffer. If you suffer, that means God isn't holding up his end of the bargain. And I believe, honestly, this is one of the most strategic ways the devil tempts us today. When we go through suffering, Christians struggle with their faith because we ask the question, if God is truly a good God, why would he allow these things to happen to me? Even a passage like Romans 8.28 that we can say in the midst of those hardships. Sometimes we even betray that deep in our heart of hearts, we believe the bad things shouldn't be happening to us. We quote it. Um, God causes all things to work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? Wrong. That's not what it says. God causes all things to work together for good. Together with what? With the bad. God doesn't just cause everything to work for good. Everything's going to be good. No, there's bad that's going to happen. But he causes in the midst of the bad, together with the bad, with the good, he's going to cause it to work for his greatest glory. So the question is, what is Psalm 91 saying? If it seems to be saying that as believers we're never going to have hardships, but it's not saying that, what is it saying? Turn to Luke chapter 21. I believe that this is the New Testament equivalent of Psalm 91. Luke 21, verses 16 through 19. This is what Jesus says. You will be betrayed... Even by parents, this is Luke twenty one sixteen. even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they're going to put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Well, that's bad, right? You're going to be hated by all. Everyone in your family is going to leave you. You're going to be betrayed by everyone. And some of you are going to be killed. Verse 18. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. That doesn't make sense to me. Your head will be chopped off because of Jesus and your hair will remain intact. What is he saying? Verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. We could summarize it this way. Really bad things are going to happen to you, but I'm going to keep you safe. That's what Luke 21 is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Really bad things are going to happen to you, but I'm going to keep you safe. The King James, the old King James in verse 19 says it this way. In, in patient suffering, you will possess your souls. Literally in the Greek, it says this. You will possess your souls only if you are patient in the midst of suffering. What does that mean? Verse 19, what does that mean? You're, you will possess your souls only if you are patient and endure in the midst of suffering. What is it saying? It's saying it this way. One, one author says it this way. Suffering comes when something we love is threatened. What do we do at that moment? Whatever we do will tell us who possesses our souls. Are we living for God or are we living for an idol? Think of financial ruin. You've been living for yourself and living for your money, and because you lose it, you lose yourself. Your idol has been threatened, so you go uh, to find comfort in affairs, adultery, any other different coping mechanisms. What you love the most has been taken away. That's what suffering is, right? Suffering is just when we love something and it's being threatened. So what happens? When you suffer, when something you love is threatened, what are you going to do? 
if you run to something else to find comfort, you are proving that your dwelling place is not in God. But if in the midst of suffering you say, you know what, God, take care of my heart because everything around me is suffering, is chaos, is evil, and I can't trust any of that around me to keep me safe. So you give your soul to God. You say, God, you're my life, not my things that I'm losing, not the things that are being threatened. Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still, his kingdom is forever. So I want my soul in his kingdom. So if you give your soul to him, you possess your soul, he gives it back to you as it were. It's safe, it's secure. But if you place your soul, if you place your hope in anything in this world that can be lost, then you will lose your soul. The only thing that believers lose in suffering are things that are ultimately expendable, however painful it might be. The only thing that believers lose in the midst of suffering are things that are ultimately expendable. But the real you, your soul, the new creature that God is making in your heart can never be harmed. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 21. They're going to kill you, but not even a hair on your head is going to be touched or destroyed. That's exactly what is being said in Psalm 91. Let's go back to Psalm 91. We'll hear God pick up the pen because that's exactly what he's going to say. The psalmist has said, God is an amazing fortress. He will protect you in the midst of difficulties. Verse 14, this is point number two. The Lord will teach on his promises towards his people. This is God speaking. Because he, the believer, has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. That means you're in the midst of something difficult and you're going to be delivered. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. So again, even textually, we can see in this chapter, the psalmist is not saying that you're not going to go through trouble. God himself says, in the midst of trouble, you're going to be in it, but I will rescue you. I will honor you. I will give you honor. I will give you uh, worthiness. I will, I will give you honor to you. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see you. My salvation. Eight different verbs of what God will do. Deliver him, set him, answer him, be with him, rescue him, honor him, satisfy him, show him salvation. Literally in the Hebrew, I will cause his eyes to feast on eternal life. What's the condition for all these things? Back in verse 1, it's dwelling, it's abiding. But here, God gives us three conditions. Number one, love. Number two, know. And number three, call. Love, verse 14, because he has loved me, I'm going to deliver him. Because he has loved me. This word for love is not the usual Hebrew word for love. It actually occurs only 11 times in the Old Testament. It means a strong desire or a passion. It's a passion for God. It's a love and a passion for God. You could just write in there, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he who does not love God is to be accursed. Do you love him? If you love him, you're going to dwell where he is. If you're not dwelling where he is, it proves you don't really love him. Are you dwelling with him? Do you have a passion for God? Do you have a strong desire to know him, to worship him, to serve him? If you say, you know what I do, but it's not that strong, be in the word. God's word is kindling for the fire of your affections for Jesus. You say, I don't, I don't think I have any love for God. We talked about this with John 3.16, the whole chapter of John 3. Ask, new birth, ask God to do that in your heart. Number two, you have to know him. This is in verse 14, I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Intimate knowledge, that word is sometimes used even uh, for a sexual relationship, right? Adam knew Eve 
um, and they bore sons. It's a, it's, a, it's a very intimate relationship. You don't just know him for who he is and what he's done, but you walk away. You have an intimate relationship with him. And finally, you call, call on him. Verse 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. I'll give honor to him because he called on me. This is prayer. This is why I'm so glad Student Ministries is teaching through praying the scriptures. If you ever want to convict somebody, just talk about evangelism and prayer. Those two things we could always be doing more of. But let's commit to praying more this new year because the Bible says, this chapter says, love, know, and call upon God and you'll find comfort and peace and security. You'll find it. As one author says, we must learn the art of strategic retreat into the Lord, finding refuge in him alone. No matter what comes, even if difficulty comes, even if trials come, as Job says in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I will trust God's protection. I will trust God's power. I will trust God's peace. I will trust him. Now, as we think about the Lord's table, we have to go back just one place to this idea of the bird covering us with his wings. Exodus 19, verse 4, says that this bird isn't a mother hen. Exodus 19, verse 4, when God says, I delivered you out of Egypt, he says, I brought you out on the wings of eagles. I protected you with eagles' wings. I bore you up. I satisfied your soul. And I made it so that you were safe and secure. When Jesus said in Matthew, when he talks, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, if only you had come to me, how I wanted to gather you under my wings. You wouldn't come, but I wanted to gather you. What is the mother hen or the eagle doing as it's putting its wings over the, the babies? It's protecting from judgment, from, from destruction, from something bad that's coming. There's, a, there's an old example. I honestly don't know if I believe it totally. There's an old example of a, a fireman uh, who was walking through a forest that had been totally decimated by a fire, and he sees the outline of a bird with its wings outstretched in ash, just covered in ash. And, and as he goes up to the bird, uh, he tries to kind of pick it up and move it, and as he taps it, the bird's dead, but as he cracks open the, uh, the ash that's hardened over this bird, baby chicks come out, and the baby chicks have survived. Again, I don't know if I buy that, because there's a lot of reasons why I think that that's impossible. But I, I do know a true story from a buddy of mine who said he saw this happen in a hailstorm, where he saw a bird, I think it was like a pigeon or something, uh, cover little babies in a nest with its wings, and the bird got pelted. The mother bird got pelted with a hailstone and died, but the babies were okay. The reality is, mother birds save their young by disaster falling on them and not their young. So when Jesus says, come to me, I want to protect you, he's saying the disaster that is coming will fall on me and not on you if you come to me. What's the disaster that he's going to give that he's going to take away. It's the disaster of God's wrath. God's wrath is coming and Jesus says, I will stretch out my wings and I will take the wrath for you. The deliverance that we needed that Psalm 91 is even talking about 
is our greatest need to be delivered by God from God himself. Our sin deserves the wrath of God on us for all of eternity. And Jesus says, if you would come to me, I'll protect you. I will bear that disaster. I will bear that judgment and that destruction. And so Psalm 91 says, if Jesus was that patient under that kind of suffering, intense, eternal, infinite suffering, then we can be patient under the suffering that we go through that won't utterly destroy us, but it will make us more like Jesus. As we contemplate partaking of communion together, that's what we're remembering. Whatever goes wrong in this life, we can rest securely in the fact that God has already secured our soul for all of eternity in heaven. We're safe because he has covered us. He has borne the wrath. And now all we have left to do is live in fearless joy and wonder because God loves us and sent his son for us. Father, we thank you for this psalm and we thank you for Jesus who is the eagle's wings that bears us up, that protects us from disaster, that ultimately saved us from the wrath of God so that we can be in a right relationship, an intimate relationship with God now. God, we want to enjoy this time of communion, enjoy this time of remembering what Jesus did for us. And so, God, I pray as we meditate, even now as we prepare our hearts to partake of these elements, may we remember the security that we have in Jesus. Not because life's going to go perfectly for us. We know it's going to be hard. But we have security because of what Jesus did on a cross 2,000 years ago and dying and then rising again to newness of life so that we could have confidence that he loves us because he gave himself up for us. May we rest in that even now. Prepare our hearts to partake of communion. We pray in your name. Amen. Say to the Lord